We want to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of Minority Report Podcast with Eric and Carell. Each episode, we talk with leaders in business, tech, and media. And today, we have an awesome guest joining us, Natavio Samuels, who is the CEO at Revolt. Natavio, what's going on, my man? Well, it's good, King. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us. Super excited about this conversation. I definitely want to dig into all that's going on with Revolt these days, your background, but I have to start here. Tell us, how was the summit? It was just, what, a week or so ago, week and a half ago? Tell us about it. Yeah, summer was probably at this point in time, nine days ago. Oh. The summit did exactly what it is supposed to do. What makes the summit unique is that it is not a concert festival. It is not a boring conference. It is a place where our future leaders and the next generation get access to real opportunities in real time that they wouldn't get anywhere else. So I'm always saying like, I'm watching kids get hired hired on the spot. I'm watching people play their new single and getting picked up by people with my managers. I'm watching young people build and make networks that will help them push their way forward in whatever way that they're trying to do. And so it was so beautiful to see so many lovely Black people in that space building, bonding, connecting, and creating magic. Also, what makes it unique is that a lot of the talent just kind of blends in. So in a lot of places, the talent's kind of like backstage. But even here at the Revolt Summit, it's like you can shoot your shot with anybody. It might be a celebrity. It might be a CEO. But just watching it happen in real time was incredible. And then the second thing that I'll say on that is we've been building this brand since I've been here over the last two plus years. And it was really amazing to see how meaningful the brand is becoming and has become to the culture. As someone who fashions themselves as a builder, it was really lovely to see the impact that we made, but how much people are in love with the Revolt brand. One of the data points that I have is, you know, you see this merch that I have on right here. We sold out of merch before the festival ended. And that's like my, that's like my go-to. If people are willing to wear your brand on a t-shirt, then you got something and we sold out. So dope to see the impact that was made, but then also incredible to see how the brand continues to build and grow with this audience that we are doing our best to love on every single day. I love that. And speaking of building the brand and connecting that with culture, I think I read somewhere where you talked about the importance of having the summit in Atlanta and Atlanta almost being sort of like, I don't want to misquote you, but almost being sort of like the center of Black culture right now. Can you speak on that a little bit as well, too? Yeah, absolutely. So last year, this time, November 11th is when the summit was. And we announced that we would be moving to Atlanta. Atlanta actually gave us a day. So 11-11 forever is now Revolt Day in Atlanta. And so we announced that we would be moving there, which we did in February. The reason we did that is for a couple of things. One, our chairman, Sean Combs, has deep connection and deep roots within Atlanta Two, to your point, we see Atlanta very much as kind of like the Black Mecca. So much Mm. of our music that's coming out right now comes out of Atlanta. If you want to find a place with like the most Black entrepreneurs, if you want to find a place that's the closest to a Wakanda, where the mayor is Black, the police chief is Black, the doctors are Black, the lawyers are Black. And so for us, it was this idea that we wanted to be in a place, but we were surrounded like in a hotbed of culture, which would make access to talent and people that we wanted to work with easier. But as we are a brand that is very much about investing into our community, knowing that we can hire Black caterers easily, we can find Black showrunners, Black producers, all of that was very much a part of the strategy. And so 
when I talk about the success of Summit, a lot of it is because I believe that we've been anchored in Atlanta and they've seen us and they've heard from us over the course of the last year, which is what makes it easier for them to show up for us. Love it. Love it. All right. Let's take it back a little bit now. Okay. Let's talk about Tavio growing up. Tell us a little bit about where were you born? Where were you raised? What was family life like growing up for you? Yeah. So born in Boulder, Colorado, which is random. I actually don't think most people ask me where I'm born. So that might be a new one. All right. There you <laughs> go. <laughs> I was born in Boulder, Colorado. My mom always just says she's just black, black. You know, her family's from Chicago by way of Alabama. My father's Jamaican, but was born in Costa Rica, came to the States as a Spanish speaking, almost teenager. I think he's 12 or 13 years old. Mm. So very much grew up in a household where my mom is where I like, I get my faith from and my belief in God and my belief in the impossible. And so much of how I carry myself in terms of values, I believe I, I get from my mom, from my father, who was also very spiritual, but he was so much about his people and his culture. When mm. you walk through my dad's house, I didn't grow up in my dad's house, but when you walk through my dad's house, it was like a black museum, black statues, black art, black books. And so I grew up immersed in the culture. So, so much of who I am today, I think, is like the mashup of those two sides, the faith-based piece that keeps me going and the love and the deep passion for my culture. Gotcha. Love that. And, you know, I have to imagine, obviously, you love the job that you're doing right now, but we were both talking before, you know, we're both executives and it can get challenging at times, right? And I'm sure that upbringing of of the faith and the culture sort of keeps you grounded and, and keeps you moving. Yeah, thousand percent. I think in general, we as black people are like the most resilient people. And Mm. when you take the most resilient people and then you give them faith and the belief that there is a God who has things in his control and will take care, like on top of that. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. That's what keeps me going. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Tell us a little bit about your career journey. Doing some of my research, I looked and saw sort of where you went to school, you know, Duke, Stanford, so on and so forth. So tell us a little bit about like your college days and how you got into, I guess, let's call it the advertising and marketing space, right? Absolutely. Okay, so I go to Duke back in 1998. Interesting story. I had no clue that Duke was as high of a ranked school as it actually turned out to be. Okay. Um, I went because, first, I, I learned about them because of the basketball team. When I'm, I'm going to ask you, too, who's your favorite Duke basketball player of all time? <laughs> oh, Duke basketball player. I was going to say, there's only one team. Okay, Duke team. I'm a fan of people who were there when I was there, like right. the Jason Williams. Corey Maggetti, Elton Brand, like those are really fun those times. Are the, JJ yeah, Reddick, yeah. yeah, those are really fun times. So no matter who comes after them, I have an emotional connection to the people so, who were there when I was yeah, there. Yeah. Yeah. So at Duke, let's see what happens at Duke. Probably a couple of things. One, I pledge Kappa. That becomes one of the most important decisions in my life because that becomes my friend and my core group for life. And these are the people who older brothers. They may only be three years older or four years older, whatever it is, but these are the people who really helped guide me, given that both of my parents came from the education world. They weren't prepped to help me if I was going to do anything besides teach. And so it is my Duke brothers from Kappa Alpha side are the ones that are helping me say, no, don't go this way, go that way. You should really consider business school, that type of a thing. The other thing that happens at Duke second semester, senior year, 
I discover marketing for the first time. And so the mm. way that I would just, I would say that school has been for me in my past was I was never passionate about it. I was always good enough to get, you know, an A or whatever, A minus, but I was never passionate about it. Marketing is the first time when like my soul is set on fire. And so that sets me in this direction that says, okay, I want to do what you did. I want to become a CMO, right? As I look at CMOs, all CMOs, most of them had MBAs. And so it tells me like, I got to go figure out how to get my MBA as quickly as possible. So I go work at Fuqua School of Business. I do a two-year stint there. What it allows me to do is A, start learning. I can start sitting in classes and learning from getting my MBA education without paying. The second thing that happens is it allows me to build relationships within the admissions office so that I can understand what it's going to take to get into school. I was applying at 21, 22. Most people apply at 25, 26. So anyways, long story short, coming out of that stint at Fuqua, I then went to Stanford Graduate School of Business. There I did my master's in business and my master's in education. You can see the trend line from my parents continues, yeah. right? Yeah. That love for educating and teaching our people. Stanford is where I can get like that entrepreneurial bug. It's when I decide that I want to be the CEO and I want to be an entrepreneur. I come out of Stanford and I go to Johnson & Johnson where I do global marketing. Really had an incredible time. You know, I went from Belgium to Spain to Colombia to Mexico in operating rooms, watching surgeries, liposuction, neurosurgery, all of these things. Wow. It was an incredible international experience. But the rule was you shouldn't be able to tell a marketer from a doctor. And my belief was if I wanted to become a doctor, I would have gone to med school. Basically, I don't have yeah. a passion for biology like that. And so I knew I wasn't going to be there long. Did you know even at that time that, okay, your goal was to be a CEO even at that time? Yeah, because in okay. business school, we started a company. I started a company with four other guys called Millennia. Millennia was essentially a company that helped our generation find our passions and our purpose. And so when I went to Johnson & Johnson, I was doing that during the day, but at night, I was already being my own C-level executive mm. on a startup, right? And what I really thought was going to happen was that my linear was going to pop and I'd be able to leave Johnson & Johnson. And what happens is after two years, millennia hasn't popped, money is running out. And it's like, okay, I now need to figure out what am I going to do with my career? Yeah. And it's at that point in time that I decided to jump into the advertising space. Gotcha. Okay. One of the things that I think you said there that was very interesting as you were at Duke and then going to Stanford, you realized that you like marketing and you sort of looked at, okay, what do I need to do to be a, a CMO? And one of those things was I needed to get my MBA, right? And I recall sort of a piece of advice that I got early on in my career, which was look out at the job that you want and the people that are in those roles and figure out what did they do to get to those roles and take pieces of their game to add to yours. And it seems like you knew that very early on. And I, and I wanted to hone in on that for the people that are listening, that are growing up in their career, because I think that's great advice. And you, you just sort of walk through an example of that of, for yourself there. Yeah, very much believe in that. And I think in my life, I've quite often, my goals and aspirations would have had me be the anomaly. I was trying to go to business school at 23, not at 26. And so for me, it's like, not only do you have to study what did people do to get into business school at 26, but mm. you got to go study who are the anomalies and what did the anomalies do to get in at 22 and 23. And so that's very much been a core strategy for everything that I've done. Who are the anomalies? If I had, it's a bad example, but if the doctor told me I was sick tomorrow and I had a 2% chance of living, all I would do is go find the 2% 
and study how did they survive? What was their eating regimen? What was their health? Like, I want to know the people who are the anomalies, how they won so that I can repeat and mirror their, their lifestyle and success. Gotcha. Okay. That, that's awesome. So take us through the path. How do you get to CEO at, at Revolt? Tell us that, yep. that, that journey. So I go from Johnson & Johnson to working at Global Hue. Global Hue was owned by Don Coleman. He built an incredible business. At that point in time, we were without question the number one multicultural agency in the nation. It was like boomerang. You know, I'm working with young 25 to 30 year olds. We're driving business on Jeep, Dodge, Walmart, US Navy. It was an incredible moment in time. And while I'm there, I start to get tired of making 30 second commercials because nobody wants to watch them. People are now starting to skip commercials, right? Mm -hmm. So we enter into this world of branded entertainment. Long story short, that branded entertainment, but like sets my life on fire. It's like, oh, I can create content that people actually want to choose to consume and embed the marketing message in as opposed to interrupting them with something that they don't want to see. And so that's what got me interested in media in general. So then when Alfred Liggins and Kathy Hughes came calling, I immediately jumped at the opportunity to get into the media game because I wanted to learn how to create content that people wanted to choose to consume. And so I go work with Alfred and Kathy for six or seven years. There I run their, I built their digital practice. I create an agency. We built that out and I ran cross-platform sales for them up until April of 2020 when I make the move to Revolt. Awesome. Awesome. And you make the move to Revolt as chief operating officer. Correct. First, right. What was that role like as well, too? Yeah, so that was a really interesting role for me because I actually don't fashion myself as like an incredible operator. Like, yeah, it, it, you, you don't you don't see that much from going from CMO to operations, right? That's exactly. definitely <laughs> exactly. I said, so, you know, if I if I I was nervous, like I was like, I don't know that I'm the right COO type. I'm definitely much more of like a high level, big picture kind of strategic thinker. But it didn't matter. I came, you know, my first official day was June first. During COVID, the current mm. CEO actually adopted a child. And so I come on June 1st and she goes on maternity leave on July 1st. Mm. And then she resigns before July is over. And mm. so while I came in to be COO, at max, I was COO for four weeks. After that, Colin, who's my business partner, CFO, COO today, he and I started running Revolt together. And so I've been running it since August of 2020. And then I was officially made the CEO in January of 2021. Gotcha. Okay. Well, again, big congrats to you and, and you, uh, on your career path and where you are now. I have to ask CEO, obviously, you're the face of the brand. You are involved in a lot of different things related to the company. What is maybe the most challenging part of being a CEO? I actually love that question. I actually love where you started. So I'm going to answer what I want to say first, and then I'm going to think about if there's more. Okay. Being the face of a brand, I've never wanted that. I've, it's never been my dream. It's never mm. been something I wanted for myself. I've always been the person being comfortable in the back. In fact, I would argue that the most powerful people, the most influential people are not the people that you see out in the streets all the time, right? Like mm. I always make it, the analogy is like the mob boss. Where does the mob boss sit? You're not sitting in the middle of the restaurant partying. He in the back in the kitchen. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, meanwhile, yeah. he's running the entire neighborhood and, you know what I mean? The state, right? Right. Um, so that's who I always wanted to be. I, I wanted 
the influence to make impact, the power to make impact, but I didn't need to be a recognizable face or a known name or brand. And so for me personally, without question, one of the biggest challenges has been stepping in to be the face of a brand. Mm. It's also difficult. It's always been difficult for me given my age. And so what has happened in my past is people will see I was a president at Global Hue at 30. And then when they see you trying to be the face of the brand, their belief is that you are not there for them. It's that you are there for yourself. Mm. And so I think I also very early on realized that in order to be an effective leader at a young age, I was going to have to put myself all the way in the back and push everybody in front of me. And so there's nothing more uncomfortable than me now having to be out in front as well. And I try to push them as much as I can, you know what I yeah. mean? But when you're the CEO, good, bad, or indifferent, it always comes your way. What's the part of the job you enjoy the most? Or what do you get the most satisfaction out of being the, the, the CEO? The impact, the yeah. impact. Just walking through the Revolt Summit and seeing lives change. Walking on the set of Bed on Black, I was a guest host on the final episode of Bed on Black this year. Bed on Black is like our Black Shark Tank. Walking mm-hmm. into that room and seeing 20 Black entrepreneurs who didn't know each other the day before, but now they're family and rocking together, handing one of them a $200,000 check to go invest in their business so that they can build. Like that impact is what I get yeah. up, is why I wake up every single day. I love that. That is special, right? When you can wake up every single day and you're really enjoying what you do and you know that there can be an impact and an impact not just that impacts the bottom line, but an impact that's going to have a long lasting effect on society and change as well, too. I think that, that that's super important. Yeah, I'm blessed. I always say that I'm, I'm not the smartest. You know, I don't have to be the brightest, but in this role and in this space, like I'm one of the most dangerous and yeah. I'm dangerous because of everything you just said, because I'm aligned with my passions. I'm aligned with my purpose. I'm aligned with my mission. I'm doing all the things that feed my soul. And so I'm more dangerous than anybody out there. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like I'm going to work longer. I'm going to work harder, not because of the work, like just because the work has to get done, but because I believe in the work and I know the work has to get done. And I want to see the impact on the other side. Mm, love it. Love it. One of the questions I want to ask you is about diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? Because that is, for a lot of reasons over the last couple of years, it's a big hot topic in the business world these days, right? And you talked about the summit a few minutes ago and sort of the impact that the summit has on Black culture and Black people and creating opportunities for people to get like hired on the spot. And when you said that, I couldn't help but think of these companies who claim that they want to make an impact, but also say, well, I would hire more Black people, but I just don't know where to go and find them, right? And it's like, well, Summit is a great place to go and find them. (laughs) 100%. 10,000 of them there for you. (laughs) Right, right. And so, you know, just want to take that a little bit further about Diversity, equity, inclusion in the advertising and marketing space, we have as an industry have a long way to go. And just curious to get your thoughts and your opinions on on that particular topic. Yeah. Look, the whole reason I come to when I come to revolt, it is my last time in black owned media. I'm saying to myself, I don't think that this is a business model that can work. It's time for me to go. I'd spent from 2007 until 
2020, banging my head against the wall, trying to get brands to see us. Mm. And I was done. I very much believe that the future of media was influencer. And so my bet was, if I can't make it work at a revolt with a Sean Combs global icon on top, then it's not workable. So Mm. when I stepped into this job, I'm thinking this is my last run because advertisers don't really believe in DE&I. Unfortunately, the murder of George Floyd is what sparks people into action. Mm -hmm. And so we've seen a lot more movement. Unfortunately, it's a lot of talk. There's not a ton of brands who got a lot of meat underneath what they're saying, but there's definitely some. And so what I would say is that we've seen movement and we've seen progress. Just looking at the way the revolt has grown in the last two years, I would be a liar not to say that I don't see progress. That said, We are so far from where we need to be. We talk about it all the time. The simple stat to me is this. Black culture drives the majority of pop culture. Black media gets 1% of the dollars. Even when people came out with the commitment, some only made it to 2%, right? Others 4, 5, 8%. How is it that we are 14% of the population, but the best ones can only get to eight? And that's like one, you know Mm -hmm, what I mean? How mm -hmm. is it that we drive 50% of pop culture, but the best ones can only get to eight? So that Mm -hmm. gap is a gap that needs to be closed. And so I will give brands credit for movement, but I will tell them every single day that it's not enough, that there's more work to be done on their side. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. And I think it's got to be, Companies like yours got to be companies like where I work at at Group Black as well, too. We have to be the leaders in continuing to drive that message as well. That's that's exactly right. That's why you see me do so many speaking engagements, because right now it's like an incredible market development moment. Right. So you Mm -hmm. and I are running around trying to develop this market that shouldn't be nascent. Black media been around for hundred plus years, right? Mm-hmm, but it's mm-hmm. still a very nascent industry. And so absolutely, it takes people like you and I going into boardrooms, getting onto stages and challenging brands to step up. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so with that said, right, things are going well at Revolt. Hopefully we will start to see brands spend more with us as we continue to challenge them. I know that Revolt just recently launched a podcasting network as well, too. What excites you about the future of what you're doing and the business as well, too? Yeah. So what excites me is always going to be like the belief that change is near, the belief that we can create change. And so when we talk about revolt, we talk about our our purpose of being to shift the narrative for Black people globally. We're Mm -hmm. not just talking about Black people in the U.S., but we're talking about the entire Black diaspora. When we talk about our mission, how are we going to go about doing that? By building the world's largest, most powerful Black storytelling engine, which you can't do without building an incredible new world and ecosystem for Black creators. So what excites me when you think about things like the podcast network, before, let's say I was dealing with 10 key creators. We've got Carisha, we've got DJ EFN, Noriega, Jim Jones, right? You can run down the line, but it's like 10 well-known, notable celebs. In order to build this company, we want to be working with thousands of Black creators, right? Like our whole, my whole premise is it shouldn't be five people in Hollywood who are Black that can make, make stuff. Right. Shonda, Ava, you know what I mean? Like Jordan, Kenya. There should be more than four, Mm -hmm. right? And so the podcast network gets me 40 new creators and we're Mm going to double that and get to 80 creators. We're going to double that, right? And what excites me is starting to see us scaling on our strategy and our plan of building this new world for Black creators because I firmly believe that as we give Black creators the microphone to tell our stories, 
we will build the engine. And if we build that engine, we will change the way that people see us. And as I said at Summit, you can't change the way people treat us until you change the way people see us. And Love so it. that's what gets me excited because I feel like we're closer and closer to that dream. Mm. Where do you draw inspiration from? Mm. My funny joke would have been, usually I would have said Kanye, but he messed <laughs> up yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and listen, it ain't the first time he messed up and it won't be the last time. Let's just, yeah, I'll facts. just leave it at that. Facts, facts, facts. Where do I get inspiration? I get inspiration from Sean Combs. Man, and he is visionary. He is inspirational. I always say like he puts a battery in my back and tells me that nothing is impossible. He pushes me to dream bigger than I've ever been enabled or allowed to dream. And then I very much and much of my life have decided that I wanted to be a free Black man. Mm. And being underneath the Sean Combs and getting to watch him, he is one of the freest, if not the freest Black man that I know. And so he gives me permission to be myself, even if I'm walking into the boardrooms, talking to CEOs and telling them that they've got to be bold. Like he's the one that gives me the permission to do that. So very much he is my inspiration. I'm also just inspired again by all of the Black creators that are out there. It's like when you get a chance to talk to our people and some of the things that they're thinking about, it's insane. Mm. And so I get my inspiration from up top, which is my chairman, but then I also get my inspiration from the culture, yeah, the people, which yeah. is where we where we, where we like to live. You know, one of the things that that you said there that I think is super important in any company with the company culture and getting the most out of their employees and driving performance. You said that that he gives you the ability to be yourself, and I think that that is so important. It can't be emphasized enough that the more people can be who they are the better it is just for a company, for society, for driving performance and, and everything else in between. Look, my very first interview with Sean Combs was during COVID. So it was a Zoom conversation. And I show up in like a blazer and a t-shirt and jeans. And he says to me, what do I need to know about you that's not on your resume? And my first answer is that I don't dress like this. Like when I'm in my office, mm -hmm. I'm in sneakers and Jordans and my tattoos around. And he was like, whoa, 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 time out take the blazer off, show me who you are. Like, give me all of you. That was like our very first conversation. You know what I mean? He immediately yeah. made me derobe and show him who I was, which then told me this is a place that I can feel comfortable being myself. I love it. I love it. Yeah. All right. Fun question that I love asking every okay. guest that we have on the podcast, right? I'm nervous. Uh, uh, don't be too nervous. Don't. But uh, the question is, give me the top three apps that you use on your phone on a daily basis, but you can't name email or calendar or text messaging because those are just too boring. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Those are the givens. Um, okay. Yep. I got you. Now I, I'm spending a lot of time on Signal which is okay. like um, yep. the WhatsApp, but more encrypted. Lots of conversations are moving into that space as people are worried about privacy. I spend a lot of time on apps that help you create content for Instagram. My mm. number one social network that I focus on is Instagram. So there's always like I use Unum to help me plan out my feed. I use InShot to help kind of edit and create videos. So those I'll put in that bucket. And then my third one that I probably would say that I do the most of, this is going to be silly. I play a lot of games, man. Like my brain is always going. So at nighttime, it's like, let me play this Candy Crush or, or let me play this Sudoku just to kind of zone out. So those are the three that I'll give you. 
Yeah, Tetris is trending for me right now. Is that, it really? <laughs> and did you? Um, when did you pick Tetris back up? Because I'm assuming you played it as a kid. Have you been playing I, it a lot? I played it. I played it as a kid. I picked it back up about six months ago, and it just, to your point, I just needed something to help settle the brain down at nighttime yeah. because you know it's just running a thousand miles an hour, whether it be something at work or my kids or whatever else is just, it's just running. And I just needed something that just would help me. It does the trick. So do you think we get a strategy benefit from it? That's one of the things I want. Like, I'm not playing a random game. You're not playing a random, like Tetris is a strategy game. Sudoku is a strategy game, right? So in my mind, I also have this idea that while I'm allowing my brain to zone out, I'm also strengthening certain muscles, you know. I, I, yeah, I, I never thought of it like that, but I, I would agree with you on that because I think regardless of whether it's, you know, what game it is, we still want to do something that is interesting to us, right? That's right. And strategy is a part of our life every day, right? So yeah, you're right. It's like, how can I get the pieces to fit? How can I get the most points? And uh, yeah, it still comes back to strategy. I never thought yeah. of it that way, but that that's an awesome point. That's yeah, awesome my cheat code. I'm a zone out, but while I'm zoning out, I'm gonna get better. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Davio, how can anyone that's listening to the podcast? How can they get in touch with you? How can they continue to follow you, whether it be LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram? Give us some of your handles. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'm the easiest person to find because there's only two, maybe three of us. So my name is Detavio, D-E-T-A-V-I-O. And if you do that on anything, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, you can find me. And then, of course, the same is true for Revolt. We'd love to have folks follow Revolt, Revolt TV on Instagram because that's where we're very active. Oh, and on TikTok. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Well, hey, thank you so much for joining me for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. I know our listeners will will get a lot out of it. And for those of you listening, please check back and continue to follow Minority Report Podcasts and look out for our next episode. Dottavio, thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Kane. Can't wait to promote and get this out to the world. Absolutely. All right, man. You take care. All right, you too. Peace.